Hey, just for fun this morning, let's try some word association. Uh, I don't know how many times I've done that with my children, grandchildren, you know, where you say one word and what's the first thing that comes to mind. Let me ask you this. If I say the word heaven, what's the first thing that comes to mind? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? I don't know. Maybe you could write, uh, let us know on, your, on the chat. Maybe you could just communicate that to us or maybe you're just thinking about it. But I'm pretty sure of this. Each of us would think of something different. We think about heaven. When I said heaven, maybe the first thing that came to your mind is pearly gates. Maybe when I said heaven, the first thing that came to your mind was streets of gold. When I said heaven, obviously among the first things that come to your mind is Jesus, right? Or, or maybe you think about family, or maybe you think about a family reunion that's yet to come. I don't know, but pretty sure that when you think about whatever those words were collectively, probably they are some delightful things. They are things that are pleasant, things that we like to think about, because that's what we associate with heaven. Now, when I said heaven, there's one word I'm pretty sure you probably didn't think of first, and that's war right? Heaven and war are usually incompatible words. They're incongruent. We don't think they go together. As a matter of fact, we might even think them to be uh, opposites. And yet today, when we turn the page in the book of the Revelation, and we look through the next window, uh, the, the curtain is pulled back a little bit more. We see John revealing something, a scene in heaven. But the scene in heaven this time is not just the beautiful throne that we saw last week, not just the beautiful uh, uh, one who is on the throne, but this time he sees war in heaven. That's right. Heavenly warfare, a cosmic conflict, as we're calling it. This cosmic conflict might take you by surprise, but it's very real. Listen to Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. Here's what he says. He says, now war arose in heaven, verse 7, by the way. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Well, that's a plain thing, right? We're told that this great dragon that he sees is Satan, the great deceiver and the accuser of the brethren. Remember, the, main, the plain things are the main things, and the main things are plain things. And, and so certainly we have a plain thing here. A war is taking place in heaven, and John is describing it for us as best he can. There are no words to describe, and so he uses images, and these images are going to be very different. He's going to use an image of a dragon and the image of a beast. The, the image of a strange-looking woman and the activity that takes place is incredible. Now, when we think about all of these images, let's don't get lost in them, but rather let's get to the message. Let's don't miss out on the real message, and that is that warfare in heaven is a reality. There's three things I want us to observe as we walk through this next section of Revelation together. The first thing I want us to see is the reality of the battle. It is for real. When we think about warfare in heaven, here we're going to be taken back in chapter 12 to warfare that took place in the past. We're also going to get a glimpse of, of warfare in the future and understand that there's a future reality to this battle. And yet we're going to find that warfare is a reality now in the present, past, present, 
and future. But John's going to take us back to the past to begin with and show us how this thing came about. He's going to show us the reality of this battle and that this warfare began sometime in eternity past and will continue on. He's going to show us that Satan is not God, although he poses as a God, although he wants to imitate God. He wants to be like God, but he is not God. We see that Satan is at war with his angels, and we see that 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 some of the angels came together with him and and in 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 union together they they rebelled against god and were cast out of heaven we're going to see that that satan is at war with jesus and and then finally ultimately we're going to see that also he's at war with god's people now, I want to read the section to you that preceded the verses we read in the first part of chapter 12. But before I do, let me kind of give you a, a glimpse. Let me tell you, first of all, who the characters are that you're going to see. And then I think you can see it unfold as we read. You're going to, first of all, see a dragon. And this dragon, we're already told, is Satan. Secondly, you're going to see a woman. And this woman represents Mary. This woman represents God's people, God's children, the church. And this woman uh, is, is very important. And then you're going to see a, a baby boy. And, and I think you're going to figure out real quickly that this baby boy, of course, is the incarnate Jesus Christ. That is Jesus when he came to the earth. Now, let me read for you. Revelation chapter 12, beginning with verse one says, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. Wow, an unusual view, right? This is not just some ordinary woman. It, clearly, she's beginning to be identified. Verse 2. <clears throat> she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. <laughs> wow, what a sight. This war that takes place in heaven. No wonder life is tough. No wonder life is not easy if we're engaged in such a battle. If we, the people of God, and all creation are caught up in a spiritual battle, a spiritual battleground, a spiritual battlefield, no wonder life is not always easy. Watchman Nee once said, a Christian life is an unending engagement on the battlefield. And how right he was. And here we see the beginning of this battle, taking us back into the past, taking us back to, oddly enough, when Jesus came to the earth. In a sense, Revelation 12 is another rendering of the Christmas story. It's another picture. It's, it's another perspective of the Christmas story, the nativity. Now, one thing for certain, it's not one we often read on Christmas Eve. Certainly, we don't gather the, the children around the stockings hung with care and the fireplace and the Christmas tree lights twinkling and tell this story. We're more apt to gather together and sing Silent Night, Holy Night and hold candles and, and, and talk about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But here we see a whole different story. 
Here we see this woman about to give birth. This Mary, he's talking about Mary, yes. This Mary is about to give birth. And, and as the male child, the, the little baby, the boy who is to rule with a rod of iron is about to be born, the, the dragon the, the serpent is poised and ready to destroy him. And by the way, tries his best to destroy him. And for the next 30 plus years, tries to destroy him. You remember Matthew's account of the Christmas story? How Matthew said when the Magi came from the east and told them about, asked Herod about the king and where the king would be born. Herod said, well, you go find him. And when you find him, bring me word again that I might come and worship him. Well, he had no intention to worship. Herod wanted to destroy this potential um, this potential one who could rule and take the kingdom from him. And you'll recall that Matthew tells us that Herod ordered the slaughter of innocent babies, male babies from two years old down, trying to devour this newborn babe. Well, now we find that the real enemy, the real strategy, the real perpetrator of all this was not really Herod, but it was Satan himself. It was the dragon, well, we, we'll, still, we'll still tell Christmas stories uh, a little bit more traditional uh, way when we get to December 24th. But for now, see this picture. The picture is this war is raging and this war is very, very real. This war between good and evil, this war between God and Satan, this war between Satan and the people and the children of God is for real. And we are engaged in that battle. I think one of the purposes that I feel strongly about in this message today, one of the main things that I think we need to see in this battle is that this war, this spiritual warfare is a present reality and it is real in your life and in my life. And we cannot sleep through the battle. We cannot ignore the battle. We cannot pretend that the battle doesn't exist. We must understand our role and understand that the only way we survive the battleground day after day after day is through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit resident within us. So first of all, the reality the battle. The second thing I want us to see in this text are the schemes of the enemy. Just as the battle is real, it's real because the enemy is real. And this enemy reveals to us his tactical strategy. His schemes actually is the word that's used here. He, he shows us how he's going to fight this battle. Now that's important for us because it's important that we engaged in spiritual warfare recognize the tactics of the enemy. Recognize where he's going. Recognizing who he is and, and where he is and, and how he fights so that we might be better able to stand as we need and want to stand. And so here we see this enemy and his schemes. What do we learn? Well, first of all, we, we, we see that he brings some pawns into play. Now, Satan is always using pawns. He uses men and women as pawns in our life. I, I'm tempted to chase that rabbit down a little bit because sometimes we get aggravated with people. We get mad with people. We get hatred toward people and angry toward people. When in reality, people are just the pawn that the enemy is using to attack us. The pawn is simply the enemy intended to bring us down. You see, Satan has a strategy, and one of those strategies is he uses pawns. In this case, in Revelation, as the curtain gets pulled back a little bit more, we see two pawns, two significant pawns in the hands of 
the devil, Satan. They're two beasts. They're described by John as two beasts. And these beasts are quite different, as a matter of fact. One of these beasts is, a, is seen as rising from the sea, and one of the beasts is seen rising from the earth. Well, let's read about them. In Revelation chapter 13, we read in verses 1 and 2 about the first beast. He says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns, this is a strong beast. Remember, we talked about horns representing strength. And seven heads with ten diadems on. This implies a richness. This implies a, an abundance. With ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Blaspheming against God. Verse 2. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like a bear's. And his mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now, that seems confusing, doesn't it? What an awkward picture, and, and what kind of beast is this that it resembles both a leopard, a bear, and a lion? Well, for the people who were the early readers, it was no mystery. They recalled Daniel chapter 7, and in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision of four beasts that come out of, of the sea, and these four beasts are described with these same animal-like features, and immediately they would put together. And by the way, Daniel tells us plainly what these beasts of Daniel 7 represent, and they represent kingdoms. They represent empires. They represent the state and those who would come and would march against the people of God. I don't have time to develop all that, but it's a fascinating study. Now, the second beast is seen in verses 11 and 12. He says, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns. It's strong also. And like a lamb, it spoke like a dragon. Uh, it looked like a lamb, yet spoke like a dragon. There was some deceit. It, it was a deceitful beast, a, a beast characterized by deception. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So here is a beast that rises from the earth. It too has power. It too um, has excess. But it, this one is a little different. It operates in the realm of deception. And it draws the people of God away from worshiping God to worshiping the beast. To ultimately worshiping the dragon. <laughs> that is the desire of Satan. That he could pull you away from the worship of your heavenly father. Your creator God to worship him. I know what we think. We think, but wait a minute. I would never worship the devil. Hold on just a minute. The devil's smarter than that. He understands that. And so he uses pawns. Now these two pawns clearly, these two beasts clearly represent um, two people who will rise to power to, to, some would say to structures that would rise, systems that would rise to power. But clearly there is a rising of power that takes place. We know this first beast as the Antichrist. Maybe that's how you hear him uh, stated more often. This Antichrist that is spoken of by Jesus, that is spoken of by Daniel, that is spoken of uh, in other spots. Uh, this Antichrist who will rise to power during the time known as the Great Tribulation. And then second beast is a false prophet. Later, that's what he's called in Revelation, a false prophet. One who will deceive the people and lead them to worship the beast. In fact, even making it difficult for those who refuse to worship the beast by giving them a mark right? You, you know about that mark, the mark of the beast. Well, I, I, I don't have time to unpack all of that this morning, but I do want to show you this. 
I believe there's also speaks to us in the present. Yes, it speaks to us in a futurist sense, but it also speaks to us in the present. Because I'm convinced there are bestial, beast-like systems that, that Satan, schemes that Satan uses today in the current present time of warfare. <laughs> There, there are things that he uses today to attack us. There are things he uses today to draw us away from the worship of God and lure us into the worship of this world and to Satan. These beasts not only talk to us about a future entity, but they also speak to us about Satan's strategy in warfare. Let me unpack that just a moment. First of all, we understand this. We need to understand this. Satan wants to destroy us. Just as these two beasts wanted to destroy, destroy the people of God, even so, Satan wants to destroy us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says that Satan is like a roaring lion walking to and fro on this earth, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to destroy us. Make no mistake, my friend. We are engaged in a battle, and the, the enemy wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your career. He wants to destroy your children and your relationship with your children. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your church. He wants to destroy your pastor. Just go down the list. He is a great destroyer and he's seeking whom he may devour. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. You say, Pastor Eddie, you're kind of scaring me. I don't mean to. Stay with me to the end because what we're going to see is he has no power to devour or to destroy us as we are resting in Jesus Christ. He wants to destroy us. Second thing I want you to see is Satan wants to deceive us. You notice the deception of these beasts. He, he looked, the second beast looked like a lamb but spoke like a lion and, and said that the people, you, you need a mark. And if you'll get this mark, everything will be great. But in reality, everything was not great. Both of these beasts are great deceivers. And, and both of these are imitating Christ, wanting to be like Christ. But they are not Christ and they are not God. In fact, Satan always, one of his schemes is he always tries to duplicate whatever God does. And we see it here in these pawns as we have the dragon and the two beasts. And we have this unholy trinity as it's been called because they want to imitate the, the holy trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And now we have an unholy trinity in this dragon and these two beasts. And by the way, when these bestial systems, these bestial schemes come together... The warfare intensifies here even today. The third thing I want you to see is that Satan wants to disarm us. <laughs> he wants to disarm us. He knows that he cannot defeat the child of God. So what's the next best thing? He'll disarm us. He'll make us useless or the kingdom of God. By the way, think about it just a minute. Satan wants to destroy us and so he uses the weapon of intimidation. If he can intimidate you, he can disarm you. If he can intimidate you, if he can frighten you, if he can have you living in fear, he can work to destroy you. If he can let you know, if he can convince you that you are going to be destroyed, if he can intimidate you, he disarms you. If he can deceive you, he can disarm you. If he can deceive you into thinking that people are the enemy rather than he's the enemy, he can disarm you. If he can deceive you into thinking that God is not a good God, he can disarm disarm you. And then finally, he disarms us through accusations. He is the, he's called in our text here, the, 
the accuser of the brethren, and he has the ability to accuse us, and accusations disarm us. Some of you, some of you, some of us, are dealing with past history, and we're dealing with things in the past, and the accuser of the brethren is constantly bringing it up. Have you ever noticed that? Well, perhaps he stands before God in accusation. We see that in Job, but certainly he's an accuser to you. He brings up the past to you. You can't get by it. How many times has somebody said to me, Pastor Eddie, I would love to come to Christ. I would love to be reconciled to God, but God could never forgive my past. He could never forgive me. Do you understand what I've done? Oh, that accuser just likes to bring it up. Accusations about your spiritual maturity, your spiritual walk, telling you you could never be a child of God. You could never be a man of God. You could never be a holy woman of God. Well, those are all false accusations. Who are we going to believe? Satan wants to destroy us. He wants to deceive us. And he wants to disarm us. And he has all kinds of schemes for doing that. All kinds of schemes for doing that. I think about these beasts, and I think about some of the bestial systems that, that we could think about that Satan has used through the ages to deceive, to disarm, and to destroy. And I think about two in particular. I think about the power of the state, the power of a nation, the influence, the scheme of using a nation who is anti-Christ, anti-Christ. Now, think with me about that just for a moment. Many nations begin in one way and then end in another. Uh, someone said, I think rightly, political powers do not set out to be bestial. They set out to be their own master. And in the process of becoming their own master, they become bestial. I think there's some truth to that. I think about those, those powers, those states, those empires that have turned the people's attention away from God, the worship away from God to the state, to the royalty, to the king, to the emperor, to the leader, wanting to be God. Now, I'm pretty sure that when, this, that when this beast is mentioned to these first century readers, when these people in Ephesus and Thyatira and Pergamum, when they begin reading this, when John's original uh, readers begin to read about this beast and think about this beast, I'm telling you, they're thinking Rome. They're thinking Rome. This describes Rome to a T. Rome started off with good intentions, but wanted to become its own master, wanted to become its own God. And finally, by the time these people were living in the time of Domitian, Domitian actually said, I'm God. I'm the eternal emperor. I'm the eternal God. You need to go to the temple. You remember we talked about this week one and offer your worship and cry out that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. When a nation forgets the Lord, when a nation rejects the Lord God, when a nation declares, when a power, a political power declares that we're going to be God, I'm going to be God, we're in trouble. And the people of God are in deep trouble. A second bestial system that comes to my mind is religion. Religion. Listen, religion, I know that sounds weird, but uh, really, religion becomes a beast. It sets out to be a good thing. We want to get religious, and so we think if we can get religious and get religion, as we sometimes say, then we can somehow make ourselves 
to the place that we're acceptable to God. You, you, you know, even last week, Chip talked about this, right? He talked about the fact that we, we can't be 50% sin and 50% righteous. We, we're all in. We are, listen, when we are sinners, we are sinners. And, and, and if we are righteous, we are righteous. And the only way that can really make sense is to understand that we can never be good enough. We can never become... An, High enough percentage of no sin that we can be pleasing to God because any sin is displeasing. But what we can do is yield to the righteousness of Christ and understand that his finished work on the cross makes us righteous and clean before God. We have to understand that. Religion can never do that. Religion usurps our power. Religion is deceitful. Sometimes because we are very religious, we think we are pleasing to God. No. Just because we are religious do not, does not mean we are engaged in worshiping our God. He seeks our worship. What did Jesus say to the woman at Samaria by the well? He said, the Father seeks such as you to worship him. He seeks our worship. And when we are distracted, when that is off the central, central um, part of our life, when he is no longer the central figure of worship, we have trouble, and the scheme of the enemy begins to disarm us and pull us away. Well, enough about the beast. Let me talk about the third thing, and that is the victory. Our victory in Christ. <laughs> Listen, we need to understand that while the battle is real, and, with, and while the enemy is real, and, and while the, the battle and the enemy are ferocious, and, and while those things are happening in the past, present, and future, listen, we need to understand that there is no need to fear for the child of God. We are already victorious. Let's turn the page one more time. Look at chapter 14 and watch what John sees. Watch the curtain pull back a little bit more. He says, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. <laughs> now, John says, look, I've seen this dragon. We've seen these beasts, but now I see a lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and for the lamb and in their mouth no lie was found for they were blameless what a scene john says the next thing i saw was greater than before the next thing i see is not a dragon or not beast but i see a lamb and i realize the lamb has conquered the dragon the lamb has conquered the beast and now before the lamb is this multitude of people these people of God who've been redeemed, a multitude of the redeemed standing before the throne and worshiping. And by the way, they have the mark of God. Isn't it interesting how he says that the Father's name, verse 1, the Father's name is written on their foreheads. May I just say something here? 
We get so caught up in the mark of the beast. I have people all the time, when we talked about having revela- starting Revelation, people would say, well, tell us about the mark of the beast, and what's the mark of the beast, and what do we need to know about the mark of the beast, and when will it happen, and what will it look like, and how will it affect us, and blah, 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 blah. Oh, no, 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 no. Listen, why is it that we focus on the mark of the beast in chapter 13 and fail to focus on the mark of the lamb in chapter 14? Notice that the followers of the lamb are marked also. And they're marked in their forehead. And what is written in their forehead? Their name is written in their forehead, the Father's name. Wow. Marked by the Father's name. Now, when we think about a Father's name, we think about character. We we think about um, stature. We think about legacy, right? I want to protect my Father's name, meaning his character. We think about character. We are marked by the Father's character. Let me tell you something. I don't know what the mark of the beast is. I don't know all the details of that, but I know one thing. When you follow Satan, you are marked by his character. You are marked by his nature. And when we follow Christ, we are marked by his nature, by his character. And what was that marking? Wow, he listed five things. I don't have time to unpack them, but let me just give them to you. Five things, five marks here that we have of the follower of Christ. First of all, purity. They were not defiled, he says. The the child of God is marked. When the Father's name is written on our forehead, we are marked by purity, obedience, and loyalty. They said they follow the lamb. Not only do they follow the lamb, but they follow the lamb anywhere he goes. John says. Third, they were redeemed. They were purchased. They're bought by the blood of Christ. Isn't it interesting that the war in heaven was won on earth? Isn't it interesting that the war of heaven was not um, um, won there? Well, yes, but won primarily here on the earth. Why? At the cross where Jesus died on the cross. His blood spilled. Why? To redeem mankind to buy us back to atone for the sins of man redemption i wish i had more time there fourth they are marked by holiness they're the first fruits of god they're marked by their blamelessness blamelessness only comes through the redemptive work of christ it's the only way we can you say pastor i can never be blameless you can only be blameless when you are wrapped in the robe, the regal robe of Christ, the white robe of Christ that comes through his salvation. Truth of the matter is, the victory's already won. <laughs> the battle is raging, but the victory is won. So we don't have to fear. And we are on the winning side. And by the way, the interesting thing is, it's not for you too late for you to be marked by the Father. It's not too late for you to become a follower of Christ. One day it will be, but right now it's not. And right now you have the opportunity to tune in. Right now you have the opportunity to pray and yield your life to Christ and invite him to be your Lord and him to be your Savior and him to be your God and him to be your king, your emperor. And in doing so, he places in your forehead his name, the name of the Father. And as we'll see later in Revelation, seals you to the day of redemption. What an awesome thing. Listen, the enemy is ferocious, but our God is much stronger. And with one word, speaks rebuke to the enemy. So don't fear the enemy. Be aware 
Understand his strategies, understand his schemes, understand his tactics, know who he is and what he's all about. Understand his pawns and his use of pawns, but you know what? You don't have to fear him because the Lamb of God is on the throne. Martin Luther was right in his famous hymn. One of the hymns that he, one of the verses of one of his more famous hymns says this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. So true. My friend, if there's a takeaway for today, it's simply this. The cosmic conflict was settled at the cross. All of your conflict can be settled at the cross right now. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. And thank you for allowing me the privilege to speak this portion of your word. Would you speak to hearts right now? And would you touch lives as only you can? We pray in the strong name of Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, Lamb of God, who's on the throne. Amen and amen. God bless you. Somebody's waiting to talk with you, pray with you. If you need some help, by all means, give us a call.